Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. I'm your host, Fred Dews. Today, I'm excited to announce a few changes we're making to the format of the podcast. Our main course will still be the Scholar Interview, but we're adding some appetizers, so to speak. Now, you'll get smaller bites of what's happening here at Brookings, giving you, the listener, more engagement with Brookings scholars and their ideas. If you have a question for a scholar you'd like answered on an upcoming episode or have any feedback for us, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. This week's interview features Shadi Hamid, a fellow in our foreign policy program. The conversation was so good that we had to break it into two parts, the second of which will be posted in a few days. But before the interview, here's a new segment about what's happening in Congress. House Speaker John Boehner getting a lot of attention. Moving ahead this morning with a threatened lawsuit against President Obama. For actions that are, quote, inconsistent with his duties under the Constitution of the United States. If this lawsuit goes forward, it would focus on the president's use of executive power to change the health care law by granting exemptions and delays for the employer mandate. Will this maneuver succeed or backfire? To find out, I ask Governance Studies Fellow John Hudak. One of the most interesting issues facing Congress right now is Speaker Boehner's uh, possible lawsuit against President Obama over his use of executive action. It stems generally out of the Republicans in Congress, um, their disdain and dislike that the president is acting on his own. And it appears, based on a draft resolution that the speaker put together this week, that it's going to focus on the president's uh, delaying of certain mandates associated with the Affordable Care Act. The real problem for Republicans is that this has the potential of backfiring on them quite severely. The The move by the Speaker, this lawsuit by the Speaker, is generally seen as not serious by most political commentators, by legal scholars, and, and I would say by the general public. And we have some experience with this, um, particularly in, in presidential second terms. In 1998, as Republicans in Congress pushed hard to impeach President Clinton, the effort was seen as a waste of time, a waste of resources. And even though President Clinton was quite popular at the time, more so than President Obama, it was seen more as a political vendetta than any any serious move to address presidential uh, uh, misbehavior. The same is generally true now. The public is quite tired of political games. Uh, they're ready for the Congress to start doing something about the policy needs of the country. And such action that's seen as, as really silly in nature can be seen, uh, can be uh, met with consequences from the public that, that really wants to hold a party accountable. In addition for the speaker, he's facing a really difficult time in the courts. The courts are, are quite unlikely to move this along. There's very little precedent for Congress suing the president. It's uh, other efforts that have been generally in this area have been met with um, some pretty fierce opposition by courts and their willingness to, to move things along. And at the same time, the result of the lawsuit, if a federal court was willing to throw out uh, the presidential actions around mandates, by the time the cases were adjudicated, it's more likely that the mandate delays would have already come to pass and the mandates would have kicked in. And so there's a bit of a mootness surrounding it, whether the actions um, of the speaker and the lawsuit itself would actually have any effect on policy. And what remains sort of the irony in all of this is that the party that uh, promotes itself as caring so much about the Constitution in this situation is not using the constitutional process to rein in presidential power, which is impeachment. Instead, they're choosing to go in a very different direction, a very tenuous direction and one that is 
uh, risky, not just from uh, set it in terms of setting legal precedent for how to deal with the president in the future, but one that's quite risky from the political side of it for a Republican Party that wants to gain control of the Senate, maintain control in the House, and then in two years uh, win back the White House. If you'd like to learn more about this and related issues on Congress, check out the FixGov blog on our website. And now, part one of my interview with Shadi Hamid, in which he talks about Islamists and democracy, especially in Egypt. He told me about meeting Mohamed Morsi before he became Egypt's first elected president, why the Muslim Brotherhood was cautious about attaining power, and why Islamists are literally willing to die for their cause. Shadi, welcome to the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to start by pointing out that both you and I are graduates of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I think I, I got mine a little bit before yours. But uh, but you're an example of somebody who is using his Georgetown School of Foreign Service degree while uh, I'm in communications. You're in, uh, you're in foreign policy. Um, and you're the author of a new book, Temptations of Power, Islamists, and Illiberal Democracy in a New Middle East. I want to talk about uh, kind of your your research method on that in a, in a moment. But first, what do you hope people will get out of reading this book? I mean, what I really try to do with this book is immerse myself in the world of political Islam. So I want readers to come out of it having a better grasp of what these groups are about, what drives them, what animates them, what do they ultimately want to see for their societies. And I think that's especially important now. I think Americans are very focused on extremists and jihadists like ISIS, for example. But we have to remember that the vast majority of Islamists are are nonviolent. They participate in the political process. They have political parties. They win elections. So in that sense, they're more, if you will, normal. So, uh, you know, as important as these rising extremist groups are, we shouldn't lose sight that there's a broader movement here that's been around for you know, more than eight decades now. So I want I want Americans to be to be better acquainted with these movements. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that to understand Islamist groups, you got to talk to them. You have to spend time with them. And you spent considerable time with them. Can you talk about spending time with these Islamist groups in yeah, Egypt and elsewhere? Yeah, sure. So I started doing research on on Islamist groups in 2004, 2005. I was living in Jordan at the time. And I was a kind of young, naive graduate student. And I would just kind of hang out at the Muslim Brotherhood um, headquarters in Amman. And they were a little bit confused. I mean, who's this American researcher? Why does he care about us so much? And that was obviously well before the Arab Spring. So Islamist groups weren't the hot topic that they are now. And also the Jordanians weren't used to getting a lot of attention. But really, I mean, ever since then, I, I've been hooked and I've really tried to track the evolution of Islamist attitudes over really 10 years. So it's been really interesting to see that with all the changes in the region, how the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan and Egypt have reacted to these changes. So um, at first, you know, at first, I kind of took whatever interviews I could get. And then there was a kind of snowball effect where people I met with put me in touch with others. And then I started to develop a network in Jordan. But that takes time. You have to develop trust, especially with groups that are a little bit paranoid and suspicious of outsiders. So it takes a, it takes a lot of time. So I was lucky to be living in the region at the time and also to have lived in the region you know thereafter i was also um living in jordan and egypt in 2008 and then in qatar for 4 years so um and and 
you know, I've, I've really been fascinated from the very beginning with this question of how religious actors who believe in these ideological absolutes, they have the, these aspirations of what should be, but then that comes into conflict the way, with the way things actually are and the kind of mundane, messy realities of everyday politics. And that kind of interplay between religion and politics is fascinating to me. And I think it's at the core of so many problems in the region that religion is very much at the forefront. So I think understanding that those interaction effects, if you will, are very important. You wrote in your book, in fact, that, quote, there was a time when Islamists used to lose elections on purpose. I think that speaks to what you were just saying, that there's, there could be a tension between um, the, being religious actors, but also the, the imperative of governance if you gain political power. And I feel like that perhaps uh, relates back to the experience of the Muslim Brotherhood for their one year in elected office in Egypt. Can you talk, talk yeah, to that? Yeah, sure. So, so before the Arab Spring, um, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood were very cautious. They were very gradualist. They understood that power was dangerous. And that's why they, they didn't want to win too much too soon. And they also didn't want to provoke regimes. And if they won too many seats, that might actually get the regimes angry and there would be a backlash and regimes would move against their social infrastructure. And, and that for the Brotherhood has, has always traditionally been their lifeline. So these aren't traditional parties in the Western sense. They're broader religious movements and they exist as states within states. They have mosques clinics, hospitals, schools, foundations, even Boy Scout troops. So we can't look at them as we would say the Democratic or Republican Party where it's about maximizing electoral gain. They have to balance political imperatives with social and religious imperatives. And that's why they were very careful before the Arab Spring. And that's why actually the title Temptations of Power for my book came very naturally because they 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 knew it was tempting and they knew it was dangerous but they succumbed to the temptations of power so you can kind of see this shift over time where they start with this ambivalence towards power but then they get they get pushed to actually make a real bid for the presidency ultimately in Egypt and some might say that was the brotherhood's original sin that let's say they hadn't contested the presidency in Egypt and Mohammed Morsi hadn't become the first elected president, then um, how different would Egypt look today? And we kind of play a lot of, you know, play a lot of these counterfactuals and, you know, uh, it would have been quite different, I think. Now, you actually met Mohamed Morsi in, I think, 2010. So a couple of years before he became president yeah. or even before they knew that uh, Tahrir Square would happen in 2011. What was it like to meet him? <laughs> See, Mohammed Morsi was never a real priority for me because he wasn't particularly important at that time. Yes, he was a leader in the Brotherhood, but he wasn't, he was a kind of apparatchik, a Brotherhood loyalist and an enforcer, but he wasn't someone who was known for strategic vision or for really having dis distinctive viewpoints on key issues. And he was, when I, in meeting him, he was underwhelming. Um, but, you know, and it's it's interesting to kind of look back because I would have never dreamed at that time and he would have never dreamed at that time that he'd become Egypt's first democratically elected head of state in history. 
So in that sense, he's very much the accidental president and that events events pushed him in a direction he probably wasn't prepared for. Um, but he's someone who was very clearly right from the beginning and um, very dismissive of the liberal opposition. He He kind of saw liberals as not having a natural constituency in Egypt, of not being really in touch with mainstream conservative religious attitudes in Egypt. He saw them as kind of Western creations and very Americanized and so on. And this was also someone who incidentally had lived in the US and, and taught in California as a professor. So that's also a little bit interesting. But I will say this about, about Mohammed Morsi. He, he, he's, the only, he's the only Muslim Brotherhood leader I've ever met who would do impromptu impressions of former American presidents. So he he actually does a Jimmy Carter impression, or he did at least. <laughs> and, you know, and he, you know, he's someone who, you know, he was living in the US in the 80s. So he kind of um I remember actually in one of our interviews, he he name checked the Deer Hunters, one of the movies that he liked. So kind of, you know, this kind of old school 1970s, 80s thing going on. But um you know, it was very clear to me that, you know, the hope was that Morsi would kind of rise to the occasion and grow into his new role. Um, but he's someone who didn't really have the skills, talents, and I would say importantly, the charisma to really lead Egypt in such a difficult time. I mean, this isn't just becoming a president of 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 a, of a normal country. It's becoming the president of a country that's going through a very tumultuous transition and it's a very ideologically polarized society as well and will be for the foreseeable future. You have Islamists on one hand and non-Islamists on the other. And, you know, in some ways they kind of hate each other. You know, um, they have very different views for Egyptian society. They want different things and they're very suspicious of each other. And also he had to contend with the military power and General Sisi, who's now Egypt's new president. Uh, and w when you talk about liberal society, and you also talk about illiberal democracy. In what sense are you using that term liberal and in, in the term illiberal? Sure. So I'm, I'm using it in the kind of classical liberal sense. So a liberal, by definition, is someone who believes that certain rights and freedoms are non-negotiable. So a real strong emphasis on, on individual freedoms, and that can include freedom of expression, freedom of religion, the freedom to not have a religion, freedom, you know, so th those sorts of things. And, you know, so, you know, over time in studying these groups and spending a lot of time with Islamist activists and leaders, I really, st I got a better grasp and appreciation for the importance of belief. And I think that we as academics in this field for quite some time, we've, we've wanted to de-emphasize doctrine, theology, and belief, and instead focus more on political structures, that that's what really matters ultimately, the political context, the political environment, and that ideas and ideology are very malleable. Of course, they are malleable. But what I, what I wanted to do with this book was, I think, overcorrect a little bit. I think that we went too far in the direction of, uh, of privileging context and structure over ideology. So, you know, we have to understand the ideas of Islamist groups. And when you spend a lot of time with them, you realize that their ideas are not incidental. They're not instrumentalizing religion 
for political gain, at least the ones on the grassroots level, they really believe in a cause. And one thing that I heard from a number of people I interviewed is that, you know, for many Muslim Brotherhood members, it's not really about politics. It's about getting into heaven. It's about becoming a better Muslim. It's about serving God. And even the way we kind of put politics and religion in discrete categories can be problematic. And for many Muslim Brotherhood members, they can't, they're not actually able to make that clear distinction. For them, politics very easily can become religious and vice versa. Um, and it's also the question of, okay, fine, sometimes people instrumental, instrumentalize religion for political ends, but sometimes they instrumentali instrumentalize politics for religious ends. So it can become very blurry and we have to kind of looked at the, look at that nuanced interaction. But you know, the point here though is that their worldviews matter and that's where I think immersing as a researcher, as an, as an outsider, trying to immerse myself in their world and understanding what really makes them tick. I feel that I have a pretty good grasp on it. By now, there's one thing that I have a challenge with, and I've had some interesting conversations with brotherhood activists about this as of late, is the willingness to die. So um, let me just explain that. <laughs> so you know, if, if the military is going to move in and disperse a sit-in by brute force and you know that they're prepared to commit massacres in broad daylight. Like last if, August. Yeah, like last August, precisely the Rabbah massacre of August 14th. If I heard something like that, I'd run for the hills if I was a protester. You know, I'm not, you know, uh, and I think that a lot of us as Americans, that would be our natural reaction. It's not really worth dying for. And that's not the way we see politics. Politics is not an existential thing. Politics is about compromise. It's about different policy prescriptions. You know, it's about do we support universal health care or not? But for the people who were in Rabbah that day, it was about dying for a cause they believed in. And I was in London a couple of weeks ago talking to some brotherhood activists who now cannot return to Egypt. And they were talking about, for example, how before they went to Rabbah that day, they had to prepare their wills because they had to actually prepare their families, their you know their their children, their brothers and sisters for the the possibility of their death. So that to me is a fascinating conversation to have, and it, it's difficult for us sometimes. And you know, they many of them, if not most of them, were actually prepared to die that day. And many of them, in fact, did die that day. So, the, yeah, yeah, more than 600. So this is not, this is not, a, this is not just a kind of, you know, rhetorical device. This is not about getting your supporters and rallying your base. This is about people who are willing to kind of take politics to that other level. And this kind of brings, brings up a difficult question that it, it it almost became a kind of fight between good and evil. And people in the Brotherhood were kind of hearkening back 1,400 years ago when Prophet Muhammad was struggling against the Meccans and he was being, him and his companions were being faced with potential annihilation. And it, it, was, this, it was this very kind of foundational existential struggle that would define Islam. Um, and that, that kind of early phase of Islam is very important to believers. So they were almost, they were kind of using that same kind of language and actually comparing themselves 
to the early generations of Muslims who had to put their lives on the line. So when politics ceases to be about compromise between partial truths and it becomes this kind of transcendent struggle, that 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 can be very messy. It can be very bloody. And that that kind of that's not just about Egypt. That's about the broader region where what we're seeing right now is, you know, war, you know, war is politics by other means or violence is what happens when people lose faith in normal everyday politics. And that's what we're seeing across the region where people fine, people hate each other. There are major ideological, sectarian, religious, ethnic divides. But that's you can you can accept that as long as you agree to resolve those hatreds, if you will, through a political process. You say, fine, we don't like each other, but there is a process and we're going to respect the process and we're going to agree not to kill each other. But I think what we have now is the almost complete total loss of faith in politics as a way to mediate differences between people. And that's why we're seeing this rise of violence, extremism, and it can be in Iraq, Syria, Libya, for that matter, is on the brink of civil war. But even in Israel, Palestine right now, where, you know, Israeli Israelis and Palestinians in a way live with each other. They live on the same general um, general piece of land and they have for quite some time. And there was a hope that they would at least not return to violence, that they're even if there wasn't a successful peace process, there could at least be a temporary ceasefire. But now we're saying, you know, now we're seeing people giving up and saying, you know, it's hopeless pretty much. And there was this very, one of the most heartbreaking columns I've read in recent months. It, it came out on July 4th in the Israeli newspaper um, Haaretz by an Arab Israeli novelist who's quite well known, Sayed Keshua who is an Israeli citizen, but of course of Palestinian origin. And he was talking about how he he doesn't want to write in Hebrew ever again. He doesn't know if he can write in Hebrew again because he's just lost faith and, and talking about moving his family um, and leaving Jerusalem after. And here's, here's someone who believed in coexistence for such a long time, but he essentially kind of closes the column recounting a conversation with his daughter where he says he tells his daughter what his father told him when he was younger that at the end of the day his fellow Israelis um, are going to see him as an Arab first and foremost and this this kind of difference which is about blood we're Arab you're Jew that he just lost he lost the ability to believe that it was possible to transcend that so I just think that to me is there's just this kind of mood of pessimism spreading throughout the region where it's this kind of resignation, this shrugging of shoulders and saying, well, we tried, we wanted to do better, but it just didn't work. And I don't want to let you go before we talk about social media. So I'm going to kind of yeah, sure. change gears here, although I know this is involved uh, with the Middle East. I do recommend that everyone who listens follow you on Twitter at uh, Shadi Hamid. Because uh, you're very informative and entertaining at the same time. Uh, I think you're one of the top two or three Brookings scholars on Twitter in terms of number of followers. So, what is the role of social media now in Middle Eastern politics and society? So, you know, I, I just I worry about. So, there was a little bit of a social media fetish when the Arab Spring started, and we saw all these English speaking, charismatic 
young people taking to Facebook and Twitter to express themselves and organize protests and all of that. And that wasn't necessarily representative. Um, and especially if you only look at English-speaking tweets who represent a certain sector of society. And the majority of Egyptians, for example, are are still not on social media and barely have internet access and so on. So we have to be careful. But of course, it is as important as ever. And, you know, and it's interesting to see how different groups use social media for political ends. And, you know, uh, it's not just the good guys who use social media, but we're, what we're seeing too is that ISIS is one of the most successful users of social media in recent memory. Um, you can't escape pro-ISIS tweets and pro-ISIS hashtags. And ISIS has a lot of Twitter fanboys. We don't know exactly who they are, but they're 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 disseminating the ISIS's message to a larger audience and forcing ISIS onto the social media discussion. I mean, to the point where intelligence services, I mean, their major their major way to understand groups like ISIS is on social media because there's actually a lot there. I mean, for that matter, ISIS issues annual reports where they detail their military victories and their operations. So it's this kind of this very um I don't want to I would have said something like the a fresh approach to extremism or something like that, but it's it's a very modern take on extremism and terrorism. So we think about groups like ISIS as primitive actors, but they're quite advanced when it comes to technology, when it comes to weaponry, knowing how to fight, knowing how to use social media, and they kind of balance their their very aggressive vicious side. So they show beheadings on on you know and all that. But they also have these pictures which have gone viral of ISIS fighters with kittens. And ISIS fighters, there's this, there's this really amusing picture of an ISIS fighter in a supermarket with a jar of Nutella with this huge smile on his face. And I guess Americans aren't as much into Nutella, but it's pretty popular in Europe. So, I mean, they know their audience in a way, and they're, they're trying to show this softer side coexists with the vicious, brutal side. So, and also uh, regimes are more effectively using social media. They can use social media to monitor their opponents, but they're also getting better at having a presence of having their own supporters who are disseminating their message to a larger audience. So it's become a kind of free-for-all of Democrats, extremists, jihadists, Salafis, regimes, and this is the kind of one of the one of the battlefields in the new Middle East. That does it for the Brookings Cafeteria this week. I'd like to give a big thanks to Shadi Hamid for the excellent interview. Please follow him on Twitter at Shadi Hamid and buy his new book, Temptations of Power, Islamists and a Liberal Democracy in a New Middle East. Also, I'd like to thank our editor and producer, Zachary Kulzer, and my research slash intern, Elena Sexena. Our logo was designed by Jessica Pavone. And finally, thanks to Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan for managing the podcast on our website. If you'd like to hear more from the Brookings Cafeteria, subscribe on iTunes. You can also visit our website at brookings.edu bcp, where I post notes from the shows, provide links to the research I've mentioned, and where you can listen to our entire library of episodes. If you have any comments for us, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu.